This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 164, From the Unthinkable to the Obvious. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm so glad to have you with me today. And we've got a lot of ground to cover. There's a big chunk of info and I think revolutionary ideas that'll bring some brand new financial strategies to your four pounds of neurons in your head. But before we get to that, I wanted to give an exciting announcement. We are hiring Lake Growth Financial Services, the firm that backs Not Your Average Financial Podcast, is hiring. And we want you to work with us. If you've ever thought about starting your business for yourself, but not by yourself, and want the control and the reward of reaching your own earning potential, this is a unique opportunity for you. Working directly with Lake Growth's financial planners, this role has a lucrative and exciting career path attached to it. Now, if you want to be part of the revolution, then reach out to us by using the link in the show notes or you can just type in bit.ly slash work LG. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash work L-G for Lake Growth. And that's the best and easiest, quickest way to reach out to us and apply. We do need to hear your response as soon as possible. We're going to be compiling interviews and going through that process in the next month. Okay, so that is my announcement. Let's get right to the content of today's episode. Now, have you ever wondered how politicians can really get away with making absolutely insane things sound normal? Financial planners are equally able to go from the unthinkable to the obvious. When you hear your financial advisor or a financial guru on TV or radio say some things that are absolutely absurd to you, but they say it with a straight face, like they're actually believing what they're saying is true. So how is this possible? It's something called Overton's window. So financial advisors, financial planners are equally able to come to wild conclusions in their beliefs. How can they go to such extremes? It's simply the creeping across of the spectrum known as Overton's window. Joshua Trevino broke Overton's window down into six steps. Unthinkable, radical, acceptable, sensible, popular, and policy. Those are the six steps. So just think about how any of the changes have happened in our culture over the last decades, and you'll see that most of them could not have even been said out loud 100 years ago. What? A tax on our income? No way. We are the land of the free. We will throw perfectly good tea into Boston's harbor before we'll be taxed. Social security? Unthinkable. We prepare for our own financial future. I'll take my paycheck and invest it in the stock market? Are you nuts? I'll save that money and make sure it's there for me when I go to look for it. These are all examples, taxes, social security, investing with your paycheck. Those are all examples of the unthinkable becoming the obvious. When the window shifts over time, it usually happens incrementally. 
So the basic notion of the Overton window in politics is regardless of what the politician might believe personally, there are going to be limits on what he or she can get away with in the public arena. And that window of opportunity is only open so far as the public at large is willing to accept. So this could be the limits put in place by those who want to stay in power. But to be honest, I think Overton rightly points to the window being largely driven by culture itself. We could argue vehemently about how well the Chicago Bears are doing this year or what they did last night on cable news. But regardless, we're going to do things in small incremental steps. So think for a moment about Mad Libs. Mad Libs. And why they're so funny. Here's one I found just searching around on the internet. Quote, I enjoy long, honky walks on the beach, getting assaulted in the rain, and serendipitous encounters with walruses. <laughs> I really like pina coladas mixed with compost and, and romantic candlelit Frenchmen. <laughs> I am well-read from Dr. Seuss to Vlad the Impaler. I travel frequently, especially to Transylvania when I'm not busy with work. <laughs> I love Mad Libs. They're one of my favorite pastimes. I believe Mad Libs work because they temporarily disassociate us with Overton's window. It allows the 11-year-old in all of us and real 11-year-olds, without really trying all that hard, the chance to replace a predictable pattern with very unpredictable results. This creates a profound non sequitur. It's the funniest thing you're going to hear all afternoon. It's great. I love Mad Libs. But if you were to put uh, all of us in a room together and tell us to write a story so funny we'd all crack up laughing, we would have a very difficult time writing that story. We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to go outside the boundaries. So we only accept what's acceptable. We take that 401k because it's what we're supposed to do, because it's what we do around here. But for the truly not so average revolutionary ones among us, doing something just beyond what we're supposed to do just might create what delta we need to go from the life we have to the life we truly want. So it doesn't take genius. It just takes guts to do something just a little bit different. To say that you may not know how to create a brand new financial life built outside the realm of what's mainstream, but you do know how to listen to a podcast to get an idea and crucially put that idea into practice. So like Mad Libs, let's see if we can find a few areas in which the Overton window affects your financial perspective on the world. And maybe we can see how we can use it to your advantage. Here's one first one. In the area of paying our taxes, let's talk about the Overton window and taxes. Let's take in case in point the acceptability of paying taxes. Now it's accepted as obvious that we all share in the common responsibility for our collective well-being and we use taxes as a mean to cover the expense of our general welfare. To many of us, this story is the generally accepted version of the history of taxation. Hey, it's this way today. It must have been this way since the beginning. That we bind together, protect ourselves and pave our roads, protect the sick, infirmed, etc. But the history of taxes goes back to very interesting places. In fact, it goes back 5,000 years in China and the Old Testament even has examples of Pharaoh taxing his citizens. History flips everything we think about taxation on its head. It takes away the generally acceptable history of where taxes came from. That we all got together somehow, bound our mutual desires to share in our general welfare, 
and decided collectively to tax ourselves. That's reality is not so pretty. It's not such a nice fairy tale. Reality is much further down Overton's window, going further back into the realm of the unthinkable. That's right, slavery. The author, James Scott, has a theory in his book, Against the Grain. Now, if you get a copy of that book, take a look at it. It's some phenomenal work. So his theory goes, if you get people to stop being hunter-gatherers, to stop wandering, to stop living in nomadic tribes, and you can find a way to get them to settle down on a piece of land, then all you have to do, if you're in the power seat, is to show up at the right time just before harvest, and by force, you can take the best of what they grew and leave them the rest. Farmers honestly have a hard time escaping because farmers cannot take their ungrown crops with them. So Scott's argument is that we ended up with wheat and grains and the production of livestock because the growing idea of government and power required it. That's the order we went in as a civilization, he says. And so this idea of taxation as a taking, in the French, the word is task, tasking people to give their labor over to support a central power that's over them goes way back. It's inextricably connected to the idea of wheat or grain of farming. So that word tax only appeared in the 14th century. It has its connections to the Latin word taxare, which means to appraise or assess. So taxation first is about process of evaluation. And what are we evaluating? Yeah, you, we, us, they are deciding how much you are due to pay. It's the evaluation about you, not so much a certain sum of money. In other words, taxation is not about money, it's about you. Let's take it a step further. Before that word tax was available in English, they used the word duty. Yeah, that's, that's why we see it still in airports. Another word for tax is duty. So looking at those words, duty and tax, you can start to hear task and duty. You can really start to hear the idea of how taxation emerged. It was about our duty to the ones over us, working for someone else who had more power than us, being submissive to a superior, like Pharaoh or Attila the Hun or a feudal lord or the US government, paying respects to a central power, living in submission or even servanthood under a prevailing power. All of a sudden, taxation doesn't sound quite so mutually collective, not so much kumbaya, right? But gradually, the idea of taxes began to change. This is Overton's window beginning to shift. So fast forward a little bit. States begin to grow. People running that state decide they want to get bigger. Now, I'm not so sure if it was offense or defense, but maybe def defense was where it started. You know, Genghis Khan is coming after you. Alexander the Great, they're coming to get us. Let's raise money from among the people and defend ourselves. So that second form of taxation starts to kick in. This is that taxation of mutual defense. Fast forward some more. Now we're in the industrial age. And one's tempted when the industrialized economy comes around to tax the very few who are benefiting most from the factory production. And they instituted in the UK an income tax where they tax the rich. 150 years ago, it was pennies on the dollar, a very small amount, only what was, quote, acceptable, back to Overton's window. And slowly but surely, as industrialism started popping up in other countries, governments started investing in their cities. They start putting things like city parks and water systems. I think part of it was they wanted a nice place to live as factories brought people into the cities and they, they were getting more and more crowded and polluted. 
But I think a biggest part of why like it's important to understand that people were having more power than they used to, that they were becoming voters and they were not tied to the farm. They were in a city where they were just a job away from a factory that uh, kept them producing. If you can't take grain away from somebody, you take some of their income away instead. Then comes World War I, the first industrial full-scale war, and it costs massively, and they tax their citizens to cover that expense. As a result, nations were dramatically going to have to raise their taxes. In fact, it was not, I'm sure, a surprise to you to know that's where the income tax in this country came from, to pay for the expenses of World War I. Notice how Overton's window is shifting, can you tell? But again, most of what was going on with this taxation was a sense of taking. But then something shifts again, and what shifts now is the Nordic countries decide that they're going to increase taxes to dramatically increase services. The first time, services are the point of taxation. No longer taking from people, no longer defending people, but now it's providing a service to make their life more comfortable. And, and that's really what the Nordic countries began to do. As a result, they all dramatically raised their taxes. And it may not surprise you that when the war was over, there was no real hurry to lower the taxes. The Nordic countries began to treat their taxpayer like a customer and that they would provide the greatest safety net in the history of the industrialized world. Over that time, this high taxation, high service mindset really led countries to go from their citizens grumbling about paying taxes to a point where the citizens are really not grumbling, but actually enjoying the process of paying those taxes because it gives them so many services. So the story continues. Now we're in the space race and there's a mission to put a man on the moon. That cost the US taxpayer approximately 4% of the annual budget in the United States for an entire 10 years, an entire decade. Not only the space race, but now we've also got LBJ's Great Society. We've also got the Vietnam War happening at the same time. So tax rates continued to increase, not because the government was lining its own pockets. It wasn't a kleptocracy, not then. The people in government instead were seeking to create goods, services, scientific progress, experiences on behalf of those they were serving. So while this went on, we experimented with using taxes to change behavior. Things like alcohol tax, so they call them sin taxes, cigarettes. They also provided tax credits to encourage people to have children. Also buying a bigger house, investing in a 401k. These all became incentives to manipulate, and that's a strong word, but to change or influence their citizens' behavior. So we've moved as a world from slavery and tasking to offering services, experiences, and nudging behavioral modifications. And now, thinking of tax as a form of slavery now today almost sounds unthinkable. You almost sound radical even saying it out loud. And taxing for entitlements is now the assumed norm. Social Security, if you had described that to somebody living under Genghis Khan, they would have not understood how taxes lead to Social Security. Wouldn't have made sense to them. What do you mean the community is going to pay for something? No, this is a, a part of my uh, burden under the weight of the power of Pharaoh, whoever it is. Let's take a swing 
in another area of finance. Let's talk about saving in the stock market. Let's talk about how the Overton window affects the idea of saving in the stock market. Now, it used to be unthinkable to put your regular paycheck savings into the stock market. That amount of money you had at the end of every week or each month was going to go into a tin can in your basement or under your mattress or maybe a savings account at the bank. You would never think of gambling your future away on something that crashes like the stock market did so regularly even 100 years ago. Remember, 100 years ago today, we had not yet experienced the Great Depression. We were just entering into the booming 20s. And yet, the average American did not have a penny in the stock market. They still distrusted it, even though we hadn't experienced some of the larger swings of 1929, 30s, and so forth. But the Overton window began to shift, even in spite of the Great Depression. And now what has become unthinkable, putting your savings into the stock market, has become obvious. Who doesn't know what a 401k is today? That's the obvious way to save, right? To the average American, it is obvious that the only way you can save for your future is an investment product tied to Wall Street. Products like 401ks and IRAs are now the default option. It happens automatically. In fact, economists are given Nobel prizes to reinforce the obviousness of the 401k. If you think I'm kidding, Check out Richard Thaler. He received a Nobel Prize when he suggested automatically taking some of a worker's money and putting it into a 401k without them even agreeing to the arrangement. In fact, workers have to opt out if they don't want a 401k contribution taken out of their paycheck every week. It's just assumed. It's even rewarded and applauded with Nobel Prizes that everyone should have a 401k and have it taking money out of your salary every week. Isn't that Overton's window clearly at work? Hasn't the 401k been around only 40 years now? So this underlying belief in the assumption that saving in the stock market through dollar cost averaging is a good idea. You're likely going to find comments sprinkled around financial articles and media online that, quote, if you want to play it safe, just buy a no load, low fee index fund and regularly save into it. Pay yourself first, dollar cost average, let the power of compounding do its magic, end quote. That's a typical sentence you might hear in one of these uh, oh-so-average financial articles. But is the concept working? A recent bank's rate survey just showed that 47% of Americans have enough savings to pay for a $500 emergency. They have a $600 emergency, they got to sell something or go into debt to pay for it. That's unbelievable. So how is it that over the last 120 years, the market has roughly yielded 10% per year compounded during the down years, but the average investor over the last 30-year period has only done about 3.5%, according to Dalbar and its a quantitative analysis of investor behavior study. This is a third-party independent research firm giving us real actual results over the last 30 years. It is true that over the last 120 years, the market has averaged roughly 10% annually, although the last 20 or 30 years, markets have done closer to 4%. Now, that'd be about 2% capital appreciation and 2% dividend growth. Two plus two is four. That's what the market has done over the last 30 years. That's just the honest truth. Now, we're all still working on this assumption of 10% returns. You'll hear it on the radio. You'll read it in articles and magazines. But we're living in a world now 
where the evidence doesn't match our beliefs. We all forget that averages is not the same thing as actual results. When we are all convinced over many decades that the only way to get results is to put your money in the stock market, it's really hard to be convinced that's not a good idea. But think about it. Think about it for yourself. Given all the market's volatility and risk of loss, would you take a 4%, measly 4% return for all the risk we've had and experienced in the markets, even in just this year alone? So guys, this is an example of where Overton's window leads you down a dangerous path. The window is now a slippery slope. Think of Tesla, Zoom, Teva Pharmaceutical. Each of those companies currently, as we're recording this, have been priced to perfection at 1,000 times earnings. Guys, this means you'd have to wait 1,000 years for the dividend paid to equal the stock price today. Unbelievable. So as investors just keep pouring in, the price just keeps going higher. How did we go from a nation of savers diligently packing away into our savings accounts and our 10 cans to a nation of stock market speculators? How did Overton's window lead us down this slippery slope? I believe there were three factors at work. Let's talk about them quickly. On a governmental level, as the baby boomers came of age, we have this large population bump moving through elementary and secondary schools. Think of all the teachers you'd have to hire, all the teacher pensions that would be required. Couple that with all the major government programs that were enacted in the 1960s, like the Great Society, Vietnam War, Space Race. And you can see why we've piled up a ton of debt to our creditors. Eventually in 1971, our nation went off the gold standard. This was a major turning point in the economy of the United States. Before that, every dollar was redeemable for real actual gold. After 1971, however, the dollar was no longer tied to anything redeemable, except for the faith that we'd have to pay you more dollars in the future than you lent us today. We were still the world's reserve currency at that time. We still are as of this recording. So we had temporarily been able to reap the benefits of not being constrained for having to account for all that spending that we were doing. Now, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, after we went off the gold standard, interest rates shot up in this country. We went all the way up to 18%, 18% on your mortgage. Can you imagine that? So unthinkable is that that's truly Overton's window. It's now unthinkable to have an 18% mortgage with today's rates at 2%. But it was procedure. It was policy back in the 1980s. This decoupling from gold caused all this massive inflation and a whole lot more. And as the boomers were entering the workforce, pensions were dropping and inflation was rising and wages were being flattened, except for the top 1% since 1973. And because of all that, boomers needed two incomes, not just one, to keep that standard of living that they were used to and that they saw their parents, you know, the greatest generation, enjoying a lifestyle on just one income. So while I and all of us laud the win for women to be in the workplace, I think that's awesome. It's great. There is always another side to the coin. There's a shadow. Many households were then put under tremendous pressure to keep up that standard of living, pushing both parents into the workforce. And as a result, stress escalates and divorce rates skyrocketed, leaving many kids alone at home. Remember, Parkinson's law says a luxury enjoyed becomes a necessity. 
So once you get accustomed to a lifestyle, and maybe you're watching the Joneses down the street get that nice new swimming pool, all of a sudden, lifestyle creep forces us to work longer and harder and send our spouse to the job too, which all of which becomes a problem for that tin can sitting lonely in the basement. You look at that tin can or that boring old savings account, and you look at it with disdain. You hear your financial advisor tell you that you need to be saving more. And you say to yourself, well, the kids need braces and the college tuition is rising faster than my wages are. And so is the bread and milk, by the way. It costs more than it ever has before. I'm not seeing a pay raise, so I can't save very much. And you know what? My brother-in-law and my neighbors down the street, I need to impress those guys plus my boss. So I guess I'm going to have to save less to keep up with my bigger car payment. But I know I need to save for my future because I just took away my pension at work. And there's this new thing out there called the 401k. So maybe the little bit I can save, I'm able to scratch together, I'll put into my quote savings into that riskier 401k tied to the stock market, and I'll be able to stretch for that higher rate of return. And so as a nation of Wall Street speculators, we were born. We became a nation of investors and we left behind that boring old saving stuff. It's easy to believe false evidence appearing real when you have fear. So once you have that mindset that you can't save much, so you have to put more into risky investments to be able to retire, that's where a, a nation of speculators is really born. And that's where the Overton window has taken us today, where we've gone from a nation of savers to a nation of speculators. So those are some ways in which the Overton window has impacted culture but you might be able to take away some key pieces from this for your own personal life as well. So some takeaways. First, given the acceptance of ideas and how they change through time as evidence is presented, we really should be less skeptical of new ideas and more skeptical of conventional views. It's not always better. Sometimes leaving your original idea is a bad idea, forgetting that there's a difference between saving and investing. But sometimes we shouldn't fear a new thing just by default. Sometimes complacency should be what we fear. So that's the first takeaway. Second takeaway is let's think about how Parkinson's law mixes with this idea of the Overton window. Remember, Parkinson's law says a luxury once enjoyed becomes a necessity. So watch out for when the Overton window will lead you down a slippery slope. You can mix that idea of the Overton window with Parkinson's law by thinking about the boiled frog analogy. You remember the boiled frog analogy, one or two degrees warmer, and your frog is just a happy frog sitting in that nice warm pot. A few more degrees warmer, he thinks it's still acceptable. So it's gone from unthinkable to acceptable. And he starts to feel that burn, but he stays in there. And he stays in there until it's already too late. He's grown accustomed to his situation. His luxury of that hot tub has become a necessity. Jumping into a boiling pot is unthinkable, but you raise that temperature slowly and the frog will start begging you to keep that fire up at a high temperature. So another takeaway is that dollar cost averaging does not work when you lose money. Here's what I mean. Dollar cost averaging, for those not familiar, is the idea that if you have 500 bucks a month at the end of every month as discretionary income, the idea of dollar cost averaging into the stock market is that you're just supposed to ignore the stock price, ignore market conditions, ignore 
the financial world and the economy and everything and just keep plugging your 500 bucks into your 401k or brokerage account. Just keep buying all the time. Buy when the market's high, buy when the market's low, buy when the market is expensive, buy when the market is crashing. Just keep buying. Don't look at it, just keep saving. That's the idea of the dollar cost averaging strategy. Max out that 401k. I would suppose that almost everybody dollar cost averages, even if they don't know what it's called, if they have a 401k through work. Because automatically every week, every two weeks, you're putting money into the stock market, whether it's up, down, or sideways. But, and here's the key takeaway, dollar cost averaging doesn't work. It fails, not because the idea of committing to put away $500 is a bad idea. It's not. Putting 500 bucks away is a great idea. But dollar cost averaging fails when you lose money in the markets. Remember, when you lose money, even $1 due to market volatility, you're no longer truly compounding your cash. So that could happen. That loss of a dollar could happen in the first day of investing. The first day you open your 401k. Heck, it could happen seconds after you put that first dollar into the markets. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, however. With the idea of dollar cost averaging, consistent saving over a long period of time is still one of the best ways we have to overcome our own human propensity to distraction. So here's what I mean. We all have great intentions to save, and some of us even get started on the right path. But unless we have a regular habit of forced savings, for example, 500 bucks a month, soon we're going to be distracted with that new shiny object. While I agree that dollar cost averaging doesn't work mathematically and otherwise into the stock market, I do believe that consistent forced savings can help push you past the finish line toward your financial goals. Why? Because when you're investing, you need to keep your eyes open all the time, noticing what market trends you're doing. This is not the same thing as active trading. This is just you being a smart, savvy investor. When you're saving, you can do it with a blindfold on. So what's the difference between saving and investing? With investing, you have the risk of loss. And with savings, you have no risk of loss. So when you have the risk of loss, like you have with the stock market, don't put your blinder on. Don't dollar cost average. Instead, regularly save into buckets that are predictable and guaranteed to grow for you, such as a dividend paying whole life insurance, like we talk about with bank on yourself, and then use lump sums where you can afford to lose those lump sums to invest into things that you can watch and allow the savings portion of your portfolio to grow forever compounded while you dump occasional lump sums into smart, savvy investments. That's a smart partnership between saving and investing. So that's a takeaway. Don't do dollar cost averaging. Instead, do a forced savings strategy, plus do some investing with lump sums in areas that you understand. So this might mean reducing down the company match your 401k contributions. It might mean putting the difference into a saving strategy instead, something that's guaranteed only to grow for you each and every year. So you're still making a regular habit of setting aside some of your money every month, but now it's going to something that's guaranteed to grow for you no matter what the market does. Is that so unthinkable? Couldn't that be more acceptable? Couldn't that be what's normal in your world? I love being not average. And to me, being average is being broke and being upside down in the markets. Being weird 
being unthinkable can sometimes be the most obvious thing for your financial future. So what did our grandparents know about financial sanity that we've forgotten? That's my question I'll leave with you today. So guys, as we're wrapping up here, I've got a listener shout out. And this time it was a watcher shout out. The reason why I say is it was on YouTube. And we do have a YouTube channel. Just search on YouTube for Not Your Average Financial Podcast. And you can find us and subscribe to our show, our channel. We had a review and a comment from Grandma's Wealth Wisdom. Thanks, guys, for leaving us a comment, one of the first. But I'd love to give you a free book. In order to get that free book, just write a comment at the bottom of one of our videos and let us know that you'd like a copy of the book and we'll be happy to send that to you via your mailing address or a digital copy or heck even an audible book as well. So thank you to Grandma's Wealth Wisdom who writes, great video Mark, Parkinson's Law is such a powerful concept. Love your ways to overcome it, raise income and decrease expenses. So thanks Grandma's Wealth Wisdom for reaching out to us about that. Guys, if you want to be kept up with everything we're involved with at Not Your Average Financial Podcast, be sure to join our mailing list. That way you will always get the latest episode delivered right to your inbox so you don't miss any of the amazing free content we're putting out there every week. We're doing regular events, live events where you can participate. We've got office hours. We've got Q&A with me and some of our esteemed guests. So go to nyafinancialpodcast.com and click subscribe. That's right, subscribe. So everyone, thank you all for joining me uh, on the wonderful adventure that is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.